Hello everybody and welcome to WTS 245. My name's Danny Murray. And I'm Graham Merrigan. How are you, Graham? Good, how are you? I'm absolutely fantastic and I'm absolutely fantastic for good reason. Because one of our favourite guests is on the podcast and I'm making a point of every guest from now on as one of our favourite guests except for when Gary and Paul are on the podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How many episodes did you say we, we are on? 245. And um, we probably had this guest on 225 of those times. <laughs> well, I think, it feels I, think like is, I think this is fourth, sixth. fourth or fifth, I think. Fifth or sixth. A resident, yeah, resident uh, guest. Our, our man in Stockholm, who was fresh off the plane from Tokyo, the wonderful Philip O'Connor. Phil, thank you so much for coming back on, man. I think Phil. fresh is a bit of a stretch, Danny. I think fresh, <laughs> I, I'm many things right now, but I'm not fucking fresh. I had to go to the barbers when I got off the plane yesterday because I don't know, like I looked like somebody pulled me through a hedge during a famine, you know, it was a bit altogether. <laughs> How and was Tokyo, uh, Phil? It was mental, Graham. It was just crackers. The whole thing was just mad from beginning to end. And I'll tell you the whole story if you want to hear it. But it was great. You, you see an awful lot of bitching, you know, you got people going, oh, you know, we didn't get to see anything, you know. These things are what you make them, you know. So mm. just the experience of being there and you kind of learn so much about the Japanese people just by how they put the Olympics together, you know, because it's, it's an amazing place and just how they dealt with the whole thing. It was really successful. There was very few positive tests within the Olympic bubble, but it was weird. Like, I mean, it was absolutely bizarre. I'll give you a little story, right? When we got to to Japan, they told you it would take you, you know, three to four hours to get through the airport, right? But I had got a COVID test, like two negative COVID tests in the 72 hours beforehand. And they sent me on the reports and the doctor had signed it and everything else like that. But there was one tiny little box specifying what type of test it was that she hadn't ticked when she sent it to me, right? So I'm over there, I arrive at like 28 in the morning, which is like, you know, 20 to, it would have been 20 to midnight Irish time. But, but the immigration and all these kinds of things, you know, took forever. So it was about four o'clock in the morning Irish time before I actually got to where I showed me COVID certs and that little tick was missing. And that was the end of the world. It took me 10 hours to get through the airport, lads. So I was coming out there, you know, sort of dinner time on, uh, on whatever day it was, the Monday that I got through. But, you know, then after that, we had this modified quarantine for 14 days. So essentially we were allowed go from the hotel to the Olympic venues and to one supermarket, right? One supermarket in, for each hotel. You are told it's that one up the road there. If you were seeing going anywhere else, the video game shit, you know? But I know straight away that um, they weren't stopping me. You had these apps in your phone and everything and you had to have your Google, um, what you call it, this location finder turned on. But I walked out the door of the hotel because I was starving. I didn't even think to ask them, you know. And I walked out and I went up the road and I got something to eat and I came back again. And they didn't ask me to check in or sign in or anything else like that. So about a week later, I thought, this is fucking weird because it seems that everybody else has to do this. You can leave the hotel for 15 minutes to go to that supermarket and come back again. You can go as many times as you like, but nobody ever said it to me. So I said it to Carlos, this photographer I was with. I said, do they stop you when you're going out uh, to go shopping? He said, yeah, they stop me every fucking time, you know. So I said, they never stopped me at all. And he said, oh, you know, I'll find out about that. So I went up to my room and the next morning I met him and he said, I found out what it was, you know, because like, I'm six feet three and I have a very big beard, which a lot of Japanese people don't have. And yeah. Carlos said, I asked him in the reception and they just started laughing. And I said, what happened? He said, well, they told me through Google Translate that apparently they find you very intimidating. <laughs> so I was allowed to wander around Japan. No, I didn't. I stuck to the rules as everybody else. I may have taken 20 minutes to go to the supermarket rather than 15 minutes. But, you know, 
after that then after the 14 days you were kind of allowed to move around but out of respect for the Japanese people because they didn't really want us there they didn't want the games going ahead 15 yeah. billion euro whatever it cost like so you know you don't go downtown some journalists did they went downtown they went to the bars in Shibuya which we were asked not to do you know so it was you know that, that end of things was a bit weird you know so I just you know I went out and I had a bit of ramen like everybody else I had a walk around a friend of the show PT Carl had obviously told me a few things to do mostly to do with egg sandwiches that I want, he wanted me to eat on an Instagram story so we did that you know but I saw that yeah it was it was crackers like the whole thing was just brilliant and as I said was it a supermarket fill or was it a 7-Eleven yeah so they have these stores over there Graham called Convini right and yeah. Convini is basically the bastardization of convenience stores right? yeah, so they do yeah, this, yeah. you know certain things are just adapted and then you know they go they move as far away from the English as possible but it still lives on you know I don't know if you saw the tweet I put out there that the word for business suit in Japanese is Sibiro and Sibiro is actually a bastardization of Savile Row in England, right? Because that was the epitome of the business suit. And now it's just called Sibiro in Japanese. And nobody knows where it came from, but that's the word, you know? So, yeah, the, the supermarkets that we got to go to were a cross between a Convini and, um, and like a 7-Eleven, you know? It's just like a convenience store, a spa or whatever. But the place when I was in Enoshima with uh, Annalise Murphy and the Irish sailors and that, there they actually had a proper supermarket and it was huge. And it was kind of like a, you know, a super queen or a super value. And um, so I'd go up there in the morning morning and i get you know the selection of sandwiches the pt was telling me to try because like the breakfast in the place they really haven't got a grip on the breakfast at all right a, a man could make a fortune selling the jumbo breakfast roll there because it's a disaster you know so you know the first couple of days you go in there and apparently and this has happened before in places like russia and that you know where people just eat weird shit that we wouldn't be used to and what always happens is that you know the bosses in these various media outlets and they go to them and say okay you gotta have like you know scrambled eggs you gotta have coffee and this kind of thing you know and to throw in croissants and then they do it but they've never done it before so they haven't a clue you know so your scrambled eggs are stone cold like it's brutal you know so um they got that sorted out but the hotel that i was staying in which is called the toyoko uh, inn in uh i can't remember what the name of the place we were staying was in enoshima you know and the breakfast was just honest to god you get a bre- better breakfast than the joy i'm not speaking from experience i've heard that you know but uh so then it was just those egg sandwiches the pg was talking about and but again because i didn't want to do things that we weren't allowed to do i went to the one supermarket it was called Daye every day and then when I was allowed to go to Lawson's because Lawson's was the big thing Pete had seen uh, Anthony Bourdain Lord Reston had spoken about these things on uh, an episode of Parts Unknown and Pete was going you have to do it you have to do it you have to do it and uh, that was just the 14th day that was where I went and got the egg sandwich for breakfast and it was absolutely massive you know but yeah 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 the, the people were amazing lads right you know oh, yeah they, you know, it's amazing for, for a country that was occupied and part of it was occupied for a long time by America. They learned baseball, but not English, right? Mm. And I can't understand that. I was like, I can't understand the fucking baseball, either. lads. Right? You I can was do over there, and when I was, over, I was over there for 10 days years ago, and I remember going to the Metro, and I couldn't see, all I could see was a flight of about 20 steps. I was like, how the fuck am I supposed to get out of here? And I couldn't see anything, and they hadn't got a word of English, but they always wanted to help you. And this guy who looked like he was in a rush, in a suit, in a briefcase, but he helped us for a half an hour to try and get us out of the, the metro station. Unbelievable. And then, yeah, it was unbelievable. Like, But like you said, it's like the, the baseball, some of the baseball pitches where I was in Tokyo was on the roof of these skyscrapers. Yep. And a stadium on the roof of sky, Skyscraper. They love baseball. It's it's incredible. It's a huge thing. But haven't got a word thing. of English. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, and it was amazing because we were going to these hotels, right? And 
we weren't allowed to use public transport. So when they started planning these Olympics way back in whatever, they probably got awarded the 10 years ago, we'd say, right? But part of the Olympics, the Olympics has very little to do with sport, lads. It's huge logistics, logistical undertaking, right? So essentially what they do is they create bus routes, endless fucking bus routes to go here, there, and everywhere. And it's basically, you know, I think they actually got somebody from Dublin bus to do it because it was that weird in the end, you know. But that's essentially what it was. Now, they were hoping that out there we would be able to use public transport, but you can't do that in a pandemic when you're bringing people from all over the world and when the Japanese people didn't want us there, right? So for 14 days, we were only allowed to use Olympic transport or, you know, private rented cars that Reuters or, or RTE or whoever would have, you know. So that was okay to begin with. But then after 14 days, they gave you a travel card and said, oh, if you go, you can get on the metro, you can get on the underground which was brilliant except for the fact that even when you're on Google Maps you can't show it to anybody because they can't read English letters you know so if you say to somebody where is the Toyoka Hotel unless you have it written in kanji which is what the, the Japanese alphabet is called they're just there going, oh, you may as well be showing them a fish you know they haven't a clue what it is you're doing you know so that was like there was a taxi driver that we got in there we showed him the thing and that was when we walked out was going, this, this poor fella hasn't a clue where we're going you know and then the pronunciation of things as well the way we would pronounce things as English speaking Westerners is not even close to what they would call them you know so that led to an awful lot of things but they gave us these vouchers as well right so they decided that the bus system wasn't going to work they just didn't have the capacity for it um so they gave us 14 vouchers each for taxis right and they said okay here's all the numbers here's the local taxi company because the olympics is also very spread out Enoshima, where the sailing was was 42 kilometers from tokyo itself you know south of kawasaki uh, where the surfing was in uh, Kujukuri is over the other side of Tokyo Bay in Chiba, which is like, you know, it's as far away. It's two hours drive, an hour and a half drive from Tokyo, you know. But um, after the surfing was over, the surfing was mad. I know, Graham, you live in Australia, you know, so you probably would have seen this sort of, you know, ocean culture is a big thing, you know. So I was down there for four or five days covering that. It was fantastic. Great sport, great people, because they don't, like, okay, they want to win, but that's not the main thing with them. They're really open, really easy to talk to. Not like Premier League footballers at all. But the day after that competition, they pulled back all the competitions, uh, the medal uh, competitions, until the Tuesday, I think it was. So, you know, it was supposed to be on the Wednesday, but they said, okay, we're going to have better waves on the Tuesday. And with that, you know, brilliant competition, uh, gold medals handed out, you know, all these kind of things. But then they changed the bus timetable. So the next day, I had to get out of there and go back to the sailing, you know. And uh, 23 minutes past six, I'm standing at the bus stop, lads. And on the bus stop, it says, there's a bus at 23 minutes past six. No bus. 23 minutes past seven, no bus. And I went, okay, I have to get these taxi vouchers out now. And of course, you ring up the number that they give you, but nobody speaks English. And you can't explain to where you are. And eventually I went into the, uh, the reception of the hotel, you know, and I said, get a taxi. But it has to be from a specific company because these vouchers are what they take as payment. You just write the amount of the date and your signature and your accreditation number. And the Olympics basically pays for your taxi. And the taxi back to Tokyo, just to central Tokyo, 290 euro lads so i was kind of glad i wasn't paying that out of my own skyrocket you know? absolutely yeah. but, but it literally took me like we didn't get in the taxi myself and this mad austrian photographer called lisi she's absolutely brilliant and if you look at my instagram i've tagged her a few things yeah i'll go back say, on my yeah. twitter some of the stuff that she did is amazing like the photographers this is the brilliant thing about the olympics is like i go there as a fan of the sports people and the photographers because yeah. the things that they could do are just amazing you know there's a brilliant irish photographer as well check her out on instagram called Clodagh Kilcoyne. And Clodagh has been with me before. Uh, Bellator had a media day in Dublin a few years ago, and they had um, Liam McCourt there, and they had David Green, who's the head of Bellator in Europe. And that, and you know, that was the first time I met Clodagh in person. And she came, she took these, we all think we're great, you know, oh, we have a, a camera phone, we have a smartphone with a good camera and all that kind of thing. 
different class, lads. Different class. The way she took a picture of James Gallagher, who was uh, fighting in Bellator, and just she had a light that was on the wall behind his head, so it kind of looks like a halo, you know? So he looks like, you know, the next saint of mixed martial arts. He looks like he's going to be this guy. Just a brilliant idea that, you know, we'd never think of, you know, maybe you're better photographers than what I am, like, you know, but just incredibly creative stuff that she did when she was uh, taking pictures of archery and that, you know? But myself and Lizzie got in the taxi, we drove back in there, and she went off to do rhythmic gymnastics, and I went off doing sailing, and I mean, it's a privilege. As I say, people will complain about eating egg sandwiches for, for you know, three weeks in a row, but you won't hear that out of me. And Phil, were you working for riders there, were you? I was indeed, yeah. So yeah. basically the deal with them is that like, I cover sport for them. It's like 50 hours every month. And some months it's 70 hours and some months it's, it's, it's 30 hours. But then when these big championships come around, like the European Championships, <laughs> like the World Cup, like the Olympics, and in particular the Winter Olympics, living in Stockholm and that kind of thing, you know, like about 25% of the medals at the Winter Olympics will be won by somebody from Sweden or, or Norway or Finland, you know. So I get chucked in at the deep end there. I love doing cross-country skiing and biathlon there because you know it's it's kind of like doing hurling at home you know the athletes you've watched them on television week in week out there's some great stories there you know so um so i get sent to those things but when you get there like i get they basically pay me a day rate right they say right you're getting x per day and that's great brilliant you know because i know i'm working 21 days in a row and i go out there and i just jump straight into it and i go nuts and you know it's just it's again it's such a privilege to go to a place like that and just work and work and work and work and work you don't have to worry about anything there's always an outlet for your story you know so this time we did it a little bit differently uh, it was difficult to interview athletes so in the mix zone you had uh, you know those crash barriers you get when Graham's making a personal appearance Dan you know when he's I, you know, I know them well I know that them kind of thing you know yeah. so you know we've stopped renting them and we've just bought them now because they're used that often <laughs> yeah exactly trips, I mean, trips it's to just, domes you know, to get broken out and everything it's now it's false economy not to, to, you know, to be renting them you know but well, you know, before he became a diva he'd be happy enough to sit there and you can put your microphone under his nose you know <laughs> but now he likes to keep his distance from us fucking plebs you know and it was the same thing they were trying to keep two meters distance between us and the athletes you know and it was kind of weird because everybody had a selfie stick with a microphone on the top of it or else uh, the Japanese people were there and they, they there's, uh, the Olympics runs on volunteers as well so people give up their two weeks and they go there and you know I wouldn't say they take abuse, but it's quite difficult, you know, to stand there in a mix zone where there's a load of journalists and everybody wants to talk to a specific person, you know. And you put their, you'd put your phone on a tray and then they'd hold the tray under the nose of whatever athlete it was you were trying to, to interview, right? And there's also a hierarchy. This is not the stuff that you get to see on the TV, right? There's a hierarchy that happens, right? The first uh, person who can interview anybody who wins a gold medal is NBC because NBC pay about half the money that the Olympics makes, right? So they pay like $7.5 billion or something ridiculous like that you know so they have first dibs on anybody for i think it's 59 minutes after you they win the medal so that's obviously the americans they don't give a shit if somebody from finland or from ireland wins you know so they go there first then they go to what's called the obs the olympic broadcasting service and they do a quick tv interview and that one will be given to rte and the bbc and svt here in sweden and then they go to the rights holders from the from each country right now again you know nobody's going to be interested in some danish sailor apart from the danish tv company you know and then they move on to me right so me, the Associated Press, AFP, which is uh, the big French news agency, and then we also have OBS because they do text there as well, so the Olympic News Service. So we have our own little pen made out of the same barriers that Merrill uses for his personal appearances, right? <laughs> and then they move on, or they're supposed to move on then to, to the local newspaper, so the Irish Times, the Guardian, these guys be a little bit further up. And the idea then is that 
me working for international media that's going to be seen all over the world, I have different questions to what they're going to ask Kelly Harrington, for instance, for the Irish Independence. You know, they might be asking her, nobody in, in Japan knows where Portland Row is. It's a fucking shame, lads. But nobody knows where that is or, or the, the relevance of that to Kelly's story, right? So there's no point in me talking about those things to her because I'm writing for a global audience. So that's the idea of splitting these things up. And then if they give it to us, we get it out there as quickly as possible and people can keep their, their sort of their work taken over or the articles that they're publishing, you know? So that's the way the whole thing works. And you basically run from a press center to that mix zone the whole time. But I have to say, I found it weird this time because we couldn't meet the athletes outside the Olympic Village. Usually you'd say to somebody like mm. Kelly, for instance, you'd ask her, now Kelly doesn't do a whole lot of interviews, right? But I'm just using her as, as somebody who's in the news. You'd say to her maybe before, I actually did say it to her after the semifinal. I asked uh, Team Ireland, I said, is there any chance I can talk to Kelly just for five minutes? Because I wanted to write about the hospital where she works and the relationship she has to her, co- her colleagues there and to the patients there. I told them I'd make a nice story and she said no she'd prefer not to you know she wanted to concentrate in the final that's grand so i spoke to her afterwards instead you know so you know usually you can get to meet people i remember there was two canadian guys in uh, what they call mogul skiing so it's basically a really bumpy uh, skiing course in sochi a couple of years ago and these two canadian guys wound up against one another in the finals right but i had done a thing with them all day where they were texting me the whole day what they were doing one of them was watching sons of anarchy or something like that the whole day and trying to prepare for this you know and one guy had been dominant for years and the other guy who was up against was this sort of young book who was coming, you know, and the guy who'd been dominant for years, he won, and the young book then took over and won the following Olympics. But the following day, to close out the story, I met them, and they, their condition for doing that was that I had to buy them McDonald's because they'd been training for four months without eating any garbage whatsoever. And I went, Yeah, but you have to meet us at McDonald's and you have to buy us McDonald's and then we'll talk to you, you know. So Isn't- it was a little bit weird. So it wasn't like a normal Olympics at all. We didn't get to do those kinds of things. But look, like yeah. I said, that's not a complaint. That's just to let you guys know yeah. the kind of thing that happens there. It- it's mad. The, one one of the things we learned, uh, and, and Merrow Mero, going to ask me to edit this out probably because he won't like that I'm bringing this up. But uh, after Rio, uh, we had Saskia Tidy on the podcast, who at that point mm. at that point was representing Team Ireland in the sailing. Uh, Saskia has now pledged her allegiance to Team GB and represent Team GB at this uh, most recent Olympics. Uh, finished worse than she did with Team Ireland. Um, anyway, so the, one of the things that we learned. Uh, no, but look, she's she's an Olympian. Fair play to Saskia. Um, one of the things we, one of the things that we learned was when kind of the games were like when you know it was all over or whatever. Essentially, like McDonald's for athletes or something comes into the Olympic Village or I don't know if it did in Tokyo, and it's unlimited and free to all the athletes. So what ends up happening, like you were saying, for months and months and months, they're all super clean and super dedicated and everything else, and then suddenly it's like I will have four hundred McNuggets. 13 Big Macs and all the chips. Yeah, they pretty much set Num. up a McDonald's in the Olympic Village for yeah. the, the athletes. Because uh, uh, McDonald's are a sponsor. Co- yeah. Coca-Cola are sponsors. Like, so, so they just put it all up there. But like, there's so many uh, of those athletes and they live so clean now, lads. Mm. You're, you're talking about people as well. Like Some of the people I interviewed before was the New Zealand surfers, uh, Ella and Billy, who were the, the New Zealand surfing team there, right? These people don't make any money whatsoever. They have jobs, yeah. right? They might get, like, you know, if you're one of the top 10, 15, you might have a deal with an energy drink or with an equipment manufacturer. But for the most part, you're saving, you're asking your Olympic committee for money, you're asking your friends for money, your, your, uh, your employer for money just to get there, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden they're thrown into this. And that was a bizarre thing with Kelly the other day. I went... 
again, we have these fixed uh, we have these fixed positions where we walk at the press conferences. I have a table up the front because I work for one of the the biggest news agencies in the world. You know, I sat there kind of right in front of her, and Kelly's looking at it going, "This is mad," you know, because for the most part, she'd have uh, the chap who writes about boxing for for the journal. I can't remember his name. He's always on the second captain's podcast. And his name just slipped my mind right now. But fantastic fella, really knowledgeable about boxing. Gavin Keoney, is it? Gavin, that's the fella. Yeah, and Gavin is pretty much the only one who might be there. You know, after fighting the national or a card in the national stadium, who'll be there to talk to people like that? It's extremely limited. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's Japanese media there talking to Kelly about, you know, there's a, there's a Portuguese media there asking her about Beatrice Fineda, who should be in the final. You know, and this is just weird for them. And the same thing with the. The New Zealanders, they came into a press conference and there wasn't, you know, there's probably 20 people, 20 journalists in there and they had in what's called the NPC. It's Gavin Casey, sorry, it's Gavin Casey. Gavin Casey Casey is the fellow, sorry, not Gavin Cooney, yeah. Um, But they had this, the the NPC is the main press centre. There's all these acronyms that you forget, the IBC, the International Broadcast Centre. The MTM is the main transport mall. That's where you stand when it's pissing rain, the fucking typhoon at three o'clock in the morning. But that's another story for another day, right? But like, so they come in there and then all the journalists in the world go, well, if they're down there, we're going to go and talk to them, you know? And they're sitting there going, and they're not, like, they're kind of like rabbits caught in the headlines a lot of the time, you know? So the girl, Ella, she had said that she was a little bit dodgy about getting the COVID vaccine and that kind of thing. And she got hammered in the press at home in New Zealand for it. And then she went, no, no, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. That wasn't what I meant at all, you know? So she was in danger of sort of, you know, you have to be very careful when you're used to dealing with one or two people. And those one or two people might say, okay, well, I won't put that in there because I know that's not what you meant, right? But if you yeah. say that in the main press center of the Olympics, everybody's going to go nuts on your ass, you know? You're not going to get a second chance to pull that one out, you know? So it it's, can be quite difficult as well. I'd imagine Kelly's head is so well screwed on that, you know, <laughs> and they're so well coached. I mean, Team Ireland run a very, very slick setup, but there's an awful lot of, of, uh, of athletes who are there who maybe wouldn't be aware of these things. You know, I noticed some of the American boxers in particular, um, there was a guy called Duke Reagan there who was, he fought one of the Irish guys and then didn't do really well. I think he won the silver medal in the end. And he wasn't really, you know, he was just like a rabbit caught in the headlines. He couldn't answer anything, you know, any question you put to him, he's going, well, yes, sir, no, sir. And that was it. Like, you know, he was kind of scared to answer those things. And this is a guy who wants to turn pro, you know. So it's amazing to see that because after a little while of talking to the New Zealanders, I always find somebody who can explain a new sport to me, right? And I tried to see it through their eyes. So there was Matt Scoringer was the, uh, the coach of the New Zealand surfing team. And I was able to talk to him about scoring, about the different kinds of waves and weather conditions and what they were trying to do, what the judges were looking for. And it was brilliant because there were so many people around the world who were watching surfing for the first time. It's kind of like curling is the classic one of the Winter Olympics, right? Every Irish person is a fucking expert on curling once every four years, you know? And that's where it comes from, is being able to explain to people what the tactics are and what's important, what you should be looking out for. And the Olympics themselves now are doing these one-minute videos because they've realized how important it is. There's no point in looking at a sport if you don't really grasp it, you know? I mean, rhythmic gymnastics, I have no idea what the judges are looking for and less do I care. It's not the kind of thing they're going to sit down in front. If that's your thing, that's fantastic, but I just don't understand it. And I'd be afraid to be life to be sent to it. Sailing, which I was doing this time around, was an extremely complex thing, you know, because they have 10 races to decide the 10 boats that are going to compete in the medal race and there's yeah. all sorts of rules and formulas and everything else like that and half the time I didn't know who was winning you know you're, what Bill, the do, do, your, um, do your bosses send you to the, the different sports or is it up to yeah. you like what, what made you go surfing 
Well, basically, the Reuters editor made me go to Surfing. So when the Games was originally planned for 2020, I know we were calling it Tokyo 2020 even this year, when it was originally planned, they came to me and they said, you're going to do football and you're going to do boxing and you're going to do a little bit of skateboarding because skateboarding was only on for a couple of days. You know, I thought, this is brilliant. Football, the reason they gave me football was women's football because I know more about women's football than most people. And then boxing, boxing was one of those things that since I was a child, I wanted to cover boxing at the Olympics. Let's face it, I wasn't the athlete who was ever going to make it there. But to be there, you know, after Michael Carew in 1992 and seeing that, you know, to be able to be there in that context and thought this would be brilliant. But then COVID happened, right? So A, it was postponed by a year and B, we had things like positive tests. We had people who pulled out. We had people who were moved around. And the one thing, I think the reason that, you know, I've been with Reuters now for about 20 years in a variety of different roles. The last 12 years, I think I've been doing sports, right? But the reason that I'm still there, part of it is to do with the fact that I'll just do whatever they ask. I don't care if I don't know the rules, if I don't know the people, I'll get stuck in there. I'll find out, I'll learn, I'll watch YouTube, I'll watch whatever, you know? So it's only about six weeks before the game the games lads and they came to me and they said okay uh, you have to do the sailing and the surfing and you know you'll still do a little bit of boxing which i thought was great and i went fucking sailing like this is not my parish boys this is not my wheelhouse really you know it's not really my crowd you know so i thought well, fucking go and learn it you know and it was actually it turned out to be amazing because the, th- the funny thing about the Olympics is that you know, there's such a pressure cooker, you know, pressure makes diamonds and shit happens that never happens anywhere else. So there was a British team, Team GB, boo. Team GB did really, really well in the sailing. They always do, right? But in one of the classes, I think it was the men's 470 dinghy, uh, the British lads had to win the medal race and the other, I think it was a pair of New Zealanders, had to finish no better than third or fourth for them to win the gold medal and they won the medal race by a fraction i'm just i'm holding up my fingers here on zoom literally a, you know tenths of a second that they won the medal race by and it was brilliant you know and it doesn't matter even if you're not interested in a sport if it's the first time you're looking at it or whatever you know but there are there are horror stories going around of journalists who don't even cover sport who turn up in a mix zone and they go and uh, who the fuck are you and it could be somebody, you know, it could be Michael Phelps. You know, the man has more gold medals, you know, and, they, and they've no idea, you know. So you have to be kind of, you know, you have to be humble. If you don't know something, you can't go in there pretending you know something about, about a sport, you know. I mean, I ran into one or two people who probably didn't know a whole lot about boxing because, you know, this is just not their thing, you know. Maybe you should have sent them to the sailing, you know. But, you know, it's like you have to try to use the little knowledge that you have and then be humble and then don't be afraid to ask people what it is their sport is about why they think the competition is going you know don't go imposing yourself on them you know and some people find that very hard to do because they think they made the olympic no no it's not fucking about you and how much you know about anything it's about these people it's about these athletes and their stories you know and that's what's so much fun it's it's brilliant that you're saying that because one of the things that i and like Look, we with Paul Howard on before the Olympics, and Paul was talking about covering kind of a couple of Olympics back uh, when he was doing sports journalism. And I think he, he was—I don't know if he went so far as to say he wouldn't really bother watching it, but I know from Twitter he was watching it and everything else. And and look, I'd I'd be skeptical about most sports and everything else. And you know, I I think more than likely, especially in some sports in the Olympics, there's probably more drugs than there was in a nightclub during the Celtic Tiger in Dublin. But that said. This games, and I don't know if it's the pandemic, I don't know if it's some of the things you're touching on there, Phil, but like this games felt like it was more about people than it was about stars or or, or something. It was the, the people Do you mean were like at stories? the heart. Of it. Do you mean personal stories? Yeah, like the, the people were at the heart of it, right? So, I mean, even from the, the I'm not forgetting the young lad's name now, but from I think it was day one or day two from an Irish perspective, that Jack young Wally. lad, yeah, the, the taekwondo, right? And, and Wally, it was yeah. almost like that kind of set this palpable thing of like right we're putting our arm around people this time it's you know what i mean 
then the, the lads from Cork who claimed the first gold medal for Cork uh, and I don't think Ireland's allowed to claim that medal if, if I'm hearing right from <laughs> Skibber Ian anyway but, but outside of Ireland you had these unbelievable stories and these unbelievable personalities emerge like you were, you were talking about the surfing there and the two New Zealanders New Zealand also had Ruby Tui who turned into one of the stars of the Olympics from the sevens the uh, what, what you call the the guy who won the swimming was the first uh, swimming medal for his country, the Tunisian guy. You know yeah. that, like uh, Ahmed half Ahmed half something. I'm, I should know his name, but all these little things kind of added up to this Olympics, feeling more like yeah, th- there's something about people here. That Teddy Rainer, the, the French guy winning gold as well, like and just oh the French judo, uh, yeah, French yeah, judo, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean fantastic. all all these little stories just added up and. I don't know, I I loved every minute of the Olympics this year. Me and Mero were texting me. We were off work for the second uh, for a week and all that, and just like watching sports I've never watched before. I'd never watched surfing in my life. I was watching surfing. I was watching uh, rock climbing, yeah. um, and I was acting like I knew what I was talking about, and just <laughs> have a, it was fucking brilliant. Like I loved every minute of it. But you know what's funny there, Dan? Right? There's been a realization over the last sort of 10, 12, 15 years about this thing. Everybody talks about storytelling, right? But most of them don't, don't actually know what they're talking about. All the best stories are to do with people, right? That's what makes this podcast so successful. And I'm not blowing smoke up your hoop, lads. I'm not, because you go and you get the stories out of people, what it is that motivates them. I was, it was a PJ Gallagher you were talking to a, a few weeks back. And mm. I, I didn't catch up with that until a little bit later. I just didn't have a chance to listen to it. And when I listened to it and it was just amazing like i mean it was funny it was poignant it was all these things and that's what makes things entertaining right you know it's, it's in the irish language you say athlete and kiro kiro gela you know you see something of yourself in these people you know and though these athletes again i'm not comparing myself to any of them right these are people at the absolute pinnacle of their you know their their physical and their mental and the, you know all of these things all coming together at, like at, for this particular point this is what it's all for and to find out those stories then because none of them is boring right? You can't have a person capable of that level of achievement, of, of what Teddy Renner can do in, in judo. You can't have a person like that without a fantastic story. There is always adversity. There's always that thing of Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school team, you know? There's, oh, those stories are absolutely legion at the Olympics. And people always said, said to me and Rogers, oh, you know, how can you write so much? And I said, you know, like, I, what annoys me is I don't get a chance to write all the things that I would want to write about these people because every single person who goes out there, like, you know, has a story to tell. And that, I think we're sort of, we're catching that more and more. We're not talking about the place. We're not talking about the sport. We're not talking about, we're, like, we're starting with the people and working from there and what it is that makes them great. Like, you know, um, the guy who won, the uh, the surf and gold medal for uh, for men right Italo Ferreira and he's from this little I've actually been uh, to a city which is qu- quite close to where he's from on the northeastern coast of Brazil right but when he learned to surf he comes from a village of about ten thousand people lads right and it's a very very poor place these are fishermen and fisherwomen there right and if there's no fish there's no money right so he learned to surf on the lid of a cooler box right. He learned to surf on the plastic lid of a cooler box as a child. And then when he got to 11 or 12, people were saying, oh, this lad is fairly good. And he had cousins who had surfboards that they'd inherited from, from adults, you know, from people around them or that were left on the beach by, by tourists and this kind of thing. You know, this thing of Western tourists go to that place and go, I'm not paying for, you know, excess baggage to bring that home. I leave it on the beach and some young fellow get it, right? So when he was 11 or 12, he was spotted by a local surfing coach. And that was where his journey to the Olympics started. And he finished up with a gold medal, right? I mean, 
these stories just fall into your lap I, about these people. A fucking cooler box, lads, you know? Yeah. I, I love that you're bringing that up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gear. We can go back to the Olympics in a little bit if you want, but the fact that you're bringing that up just feels like a natural segue for me to start talking about basketball, right? Good man. Because a little bit what you're saying there, you, you could pick that story up, you could drop it in Greece and be talking about Giannis Antetokounmpo, right? Like, now, if, if you're talking about that whole thing of you're not talking about the place, you're not talking about the, the you're, you're talking about the people and their story. Giannis is like, and the fact that he's now he's got his championship, he's a two-time MVP. He's, what is he? Twenty-six. Yeah, he's not that old right enough. I mean, Jesus Christ! Like, Who's this now? Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's he's arguably the best player in basketball at the moment. I think that's fair to say, Phil. Oh, I wouldn't think so. But anyway, I let I let you. I know you have it. You know you have the hubris going. So I gotta let you go on that right, one. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> he's so certainly he's, won the top five. He's. Uh, top five only look at it I, I, I leave myself open here I'm okay, all right, all right. Three there, <laughs> who's he playing for who's he playing for he's playing he for the Milwaukee, Milwaukee Bucks right so he's he's called the Greek freak right and oh I've heard he, of him yeah he's like he is he's a phenomenal phenomenal basketball player he doesn't have a jump shot in his arsenal unfortunately that's probably what puts him down in Phil's pecking order I don't know but what he's he's Nigerian uh, Greek uh, descent his, I think his parents moved to Greece, he hadn't got a pot to piss in when he was a kid. He's got two brothers, uh, and he only started playing basketball when he was like, I think, it was like fourteen or something like that. I think the the coach saw he's like, this guy's big, this guy's athletic. He was playing soccer, football at the time, like, and the coach was like, this guy's big, he's athletic, he's he's all these things. I'm gonna see if we can get him play basketball. But Giannis wouldn't go and play it because the the days that the basketball training or whatever was on, that was when he would normally go. His parents used to basically sell knockoff watches on tourist beaches in Greece. That's how they made money. Like, And on the days where basketball was on, they were the days that he'd be down on the beach selling all the stuff. So the coach basically convinced him, look, I'll buy your family's groceries for a week or two weeks or whatever it is if you just come play basketball and just give it a go. And he fucking hated it. He absolutely hated it. Like, But his brother loved it. So he kind of went, all right, look, my brother likes it. I'm going to stick at it then just to... And kind of the story kicks on there after a little while, and he wasn't great at that stage. He wasn't even like you know, but there was enough in him that kind of the scouts from the NBA, NBA decided that they were going to go out to Greece and watch this guy. The only ones that took a punt on him, as far as I know, were the books. I don't know if anybody else took interest in him or not. But he wasn't a Greek citizen. He was still you know he hadn't got his papers or whatever yet at this point, um, and he was like getting like dogs abuse from. Greece basketball fans like you know like monkey chants and everything at some matches and all this kind of stuff so when the books came knocking he had to get Greek citizenship in order to get over to America to play like the books owner was a US senator I think yeah and because of that then it, it got a couple of strings were pulled in any way and, and Giannis got over there his story and his rise from there it's just it's amazing like, but, but this guy and what he's achieved is, is fucking amazing like, it and genuinely is. What, what actually, like, even in the beginning when he was drafted, when he was brought over there, he wasn't that great to begin with. Yeah, you know, he had yeah. huge holes in his game, but they just thought he was going to be a standard, you know, 6'10", 7-foot big man, right? And we'll pop him in there, we'll see what happened. And then all of a sudden, he just started taking the ball on the open floor, and nobody could stop him. And from then, you know, he just became this, you know, seven-foot point guard, basically, and murdering teams altogether. And they, they didn't really do well in the playoffs last year, but this year yeah. they went the whole way, you know. But I don't know if I ever told you, Dan, um, mm. I met one of his brothers 
years ago. Did I tell you this story before? No, no, you didn't. No, no. Okay, so I was over, you know, one of the privileges of this job, lads, is that, you know, sometimes I get, I just go somewhere and I go and do things and writers will usually publish what I do, you know, so I tend to go over and do, you know, two, three times a year, I'll do a bunch of Premier League games, I'll catch up with the Scandinavian players I know over there, you know, so I was in New York City one time and I can't remember what I was doing specifically. I think I went over there for Swedish radio to do a thing about Jonas Jarebko, who was uh, the only Swede to play in the NBA at that point. And he was playing for uh, the Boston Celtics, which is the team that I've been supporting since the mid-1980s, you know. But I went up to, I met him in New York, and then I went up to Boston, and then I came back to New York, and I was flying back at, uh, I was flying back at half past 10 on a Friday night from JFK, right? And I see there's a game on, and it's the New York Knicks playing against the Detroit Pistons, and we're back in town, uh, to play against them. I thought, right, well, if the game tips off at seven o'clock, what you usually do is you go down to Madison Square Garden about half past five, right? So you go down there, there's a media cafe, right? You pay six or seven dollars and they put on this huge spread and there's desserts and there's all the Coke you can drink and coffee and cake and the whole lot, you know? So it's actually the cheapest way to eat in New York City as well, you know? So I went down there and I thought, I'm going to do a story about European players in the NBA because there's a guy called Jose Calderon from Spain who's a great point guard who'd played an awful lot of teams over there I thought well he's there so I can talk to him you had Christos Porzingis who's a 7 foot 2 inch uh, from uh, centre from Latvia so I said okay I have something here now it's completely different to sport in Europe it's not like Shamrock Rovers and these divas lads who don't let anybody in. in in the NBA you can go into the locker room before and after the game you know so I looked at the timetable and went, okay, I can still get out to JFK, but I can get down there you know, while they're warming up and that. I can go into the locker room, try and talk to these guys and still get the subway out to JFK in time for the flight, you know? So in I walk anyway, and then... Um Tanasas Antetokounmpo was there on a 10-day contract, right? He was still trying to make it in the NBA, right? Now, Giannis had been signed by the books. I was doing mm. pretty okay at that stage. I think the previous night he'd scored a whole heap of points. I'll dig up the, the link to the interview I did. And I said, I'm going to base it on him, you know, on his dream of getting there. From that poverty that you mentioned in Greece, his brother's already made it. Now he's trying to make it. Now the other brother is there as well, you know? So I based the story on him. But I all, I'll never forget it, lads, because your man Jose Calderon, towards the end, they closed the, the locker room about I think it's 30 minutes before the game starts because the coach wants to go through what he's going through, you know? And usually with, you know, Premier League players or rugby players or whatever, they don't want to talk to you and they just want to fucking get rid of you and, you know, any excuse whatsoever to give you a short answer, you know? So I was talking to Jose Calderon, the Spanish guy who'd been in the league for a long time and, you know, I was saying to him, what do European players need to do? What's different now from when you came in at that, you know? And the next thing, the PR guy from the Knicks uh, comes into the room and he goes, right, lads, we have to close the locker room. And Calderon says to him, no, no, not this guy. He's not finished yet. Fucking hell, okay, you know. And he goes, Okay, is there anything else you need now? Look at if not, come back after the game. And I said, Well, you know, I'm gonna be on a plane. He said, Okay, well ask away, whatever you need, you know. So I jumped on the subway then and I almost missed the flight back because you know, like I stayed at Dion Warwick Sand the National Anthem last that night in the Madison Square Garden, <laughs> and then I stayed and I said, ah, I'll make it to halftime. And I almost missed the flight back. And I wrote the story on the plane and filed it the next morning. And then, like, you know, I think that was 2015, so six years later. Uh, Tanasas has gone from a 10-day contract with the Knicks, which wasn't renewed. He was let go mm. after that contract. But like he really did grind to get in there. So that whole family, I mean, it really is the American dream. You know, when you think of coming from Europe, as so many of our forefathers did from the time of the famine onwards. I mean, I'm sure we all have family living in different places in the States, in Chicago and Boston, New York, who did the same thing as these lads did. But Jesus, dirt poor going over there. And then to have that success is absolutely amazing. What's the average wage is there on the NBA? It depends. So, you know, when you go in there, like most of the lowest would be around about $500,000 a year and upwards, right? But like, That's you know, the lowest. The top, 
that, that's about the lowest, right? But it's so hard, Mero, right? There's about 450 jobs for professional basketball players in the NBA, right? There's about 300 million people in the United States of America. There's a whole bunch more in Canada. There's a damn sight more around the world in Nigeria and in China. You know, there's great players all over the place in Real Madrid and Turkey and Greece, where those guys are from, you know? So the competition to be one of the 450 best players, 500 grand isn't near enough. There are actually players in, in Besiktas and in Galatasaray and in Fenerbahce and in Real Madrid and Barcelona in Europe who make more than some guys in the NBA, right? but they just can't get a gig there. You know, there's a place, um, Yarebko, the Swede, he was playing for Kimki in Moscow a while ago, and he was making more money than he made when he was playing for the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals. That's just That's how it is. But people will take that, you know, he would take that, that pay cut just to have play for the Golden State Warriors in the NBA finals because that's where everybody wants to be. That's, you know, where everybody wants to win, you know. So that was the thing about, you know, that, that's the, the, the competition that's there. And there's a lot of guys there who probably could make more money abroad in Europe or in Spain or, you but know, it's or in the China. Man in, in Europe, like you mentioned there, Besiktas, Fenerbahce, Galatasaray, Barcelona, Real Madrid, like that, they all, all those football teams have basketball teams and they also have wheelchair basketball teams, that, and the wheelchair basketball teams are professional and are paid as well. I mean, that, that's fantastic to see, but they're sports clubs, right? So they exist not only as football clubs. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, the Barcelona basketball team actually makes money. It, it, like, they, they make a profit at that every year, you know, which is more than can be said for the football team. But when <laughs> yeah. you have a, an organization of that size and that's so rooted in the community, you have the socios in, in Barcelona, right? 100,000 members. And that covers every aspect of society, you know, from bankers to fellas driving buses, you know, and they want to have that representation. And that's where wheelchair sport comes into it. That's where women's sport comes into it. Like, I know two of the guys now or three of the guys are playing for Barcelona at the moment and they're well treated and one of them is very very well paid for, for a female footballer you know but that's the idea you know unfortunately in Ireland we're still sort of caught in the thing in Gaelic games we have it because you have you have clubs rather than teams so you'll have a club that plays football and hurling and handball and that the Stockholm Gales here we've just started a, sec- a soccer section here because lads want to play soccer you know so we have Gaelic football and soccer and if the girls want to start something they'll be allowed to start that too but this idea of having something bigger you know where you can sort of pool the resources of a local community and you know if you have to take some of the revenue that comes in for the football well then that's great and put it into you know wheelchair basketball or whatever the sport happens to be if it's archery i know uh, aik here uh, one of the local sports clubs they have boxing they have greco-roman wrestling but the main thing the main sort of generator of, of income for them is soccer on the men's and women's side you know so to have that idea and like it does make it easier to have these huge brands as well all those teams I mentioned there they're the ones I, I remember because they're all Champions League soccer clubs or, or, or Europa yeah. League soccer clubs as well you know but that's where you know the, the revenue and the name recognition comes from Did you, an Irish guy sign for AIK recently he did, yeah, Zach. I haven't met him yet, actually. That might yeah. be the next podcast I do next weekend. He's actually doing really well at the moment because he came in and, you know, I know people at that club, but, you know, I actually know some of the guys he's playing with. I used to run a soccer club with one of the fellows who plays up front for the team, you know. And he was telling me before Zach signed, he said, yeah, this fellow's been here for a few days, been training, he's pretty good, you know. And then somebody in the club was telling me that I can't remember where he came from. It was a Lincoln City, I think, was the last club yeah. that he was playing for. Mm. And they were saying that, you know, he'd, he'd been a little bit in the off-season, but they were still really impressed at the, the test results that he was getting in terms of a CO2 max and where his fitness was. And he's starting games, lads. And I haven't, as I say, I've been away now for three weeks in Tokyo, so he signed just before I left. But he's been doing really well. Started the derby against Hugo the other day. They 
they won four one, which is great. Away, you know, away win of the derby, and the players he's playing with are very very good. Um, Alexander Milosevic who used to play for Nottingham Forest, has played for Darmstadt in Germany in the Bundesliga. You know, these like Henock, the fellow I know, he played. I think he scored twelve goals for via the lead one se- uh, one season in uh, La Liga. You know, so you're talking about good players that he's he's playing with, and if he's taking one of the eleven spots in that team, a bit like the four hundred and fifty in the NBA, that means that this is a good player. So I'm looking forward to talking to him actually and asking him you know about his national team aspirations because this is the first time really that I've seen an Irish player of his age coming to Sweden and trying to make something of himself you know and yeah. I'd love to see Stephen He's Kenny under 21 captain as well yeah that's the thing like so the, the way he sort of caught the eye here in Sweden was that he played in a team uh, I think Keith Andrews and Stephen Kenny actually had that team and that's they right. did really really well against the Swedes and that I, I believe is where they saw him for the first time and they thought okay let's file that fella away you know and then they were looking for a player of that type and all of a sudden there he is you know so you never know the day or the arrow but it's going to be fascinating to see you know if he can keep fit now and what sort of a contribution he can make what I'm being told by the club is that he still that he still has greater capacity like so the fitter he gets the better he's going to get you know so I can't Brilliant. wait to see what he's able to do with. to try and hijack a back to basketball Mero you'll be interested now there is also an Irish prospect in the NBA. Just so that oh well, Aiden Aiden. I know the chap. He has a Nigerian surname, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, I think it's and I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's like Egon e- or something like that. E- so, something e- like that. Yeah. yeah, I always mix them up with uh, with Adam Eda, the footballer. Those those yes. two surnames, and I have to apologise to the chap for that. But he's he. I think he's in college at the moment, isn't he? He is. And, yeah. So he's 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 playing college ball at the moment, but he's touted as like. Uh, he's only twenty, so he's probably be probably next year's draft. Would it be? Yeah, yeah he's you know. So. I, I think we've only had one Irish player ever in the yeah, NBA. Yeah, I think Jarlis yeah. Regan has interviewed him, and that was a good few years ago. Pat, you know? I was Pat just checking Bork. the. Pat That's Bork. who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, was the, that, was the player, there in the background? Was he? The probably, player yeah. that Dan's talking about is Aiden. Uh, Aiden Ijehan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't that's pronounce the second name, but yeah, that's yeah. yeah. So he's he's only twenty. He's playing college ball at the moment. He's touted as uh, like the Irish a, Hulk, a hot hot prospect. Yeah, L- um, lads, I'll tell you something for nothing. We're gonna have to get better at pronouncing the the Nigerian. Well, absolutely, Irish we are. Yeah, the sprinters, the female sprinters. Wow, they're burning things up on the track. You know, and the, by the time the next absolutely. Olympics comes around in Paris, wouldn't surprise me if a few of them were making the odd final as well. So it's gonna be fantastic. So absolutely. we'll have to get a few lessons get, getting stuck in there. You know, great great yeah. diversity in Irish sport, and it's great to see uh, Phil. So. I know a lot of people will, will know about obviously PSG basically assembling the Avengers to try and win the Champions League. <laughs> but the, the Lakers are basically trying to do the same thing. Yeah. What do you make of the signings there? Like the idea of bringing, I don't know, Russell Westbrook is just one of those people that, you know, I've always said that him and James Harden, right? As long as we only play basketball with one ball, you can't win a championship with those guys, right? Because they just. <laughs> They take so much over, you know. If they had two balls, to be grand. It's like Mero as well. He's like, Mero, oh, the look at me basketball player. You know that? You're your grand lads. You, well, you go defend. I look after the rest of you. That's, know? that's the problem that's with Russell. It. That's, that's, it. The, that's the problem with, with that. The problem with Russell, Russell Westbrook is that he's got a fucking triple-double in his name and that's all he's interested in. <laughs> that's it. You know what I mean? That's all he's interested in. Wasn't there a season he averaged a triple-double? Like, you know, because Oscar Robertson, I think, was the last one to do it in 1960-whatever, 70-whatever, you know? Mm. And when you have fellas like that, like basketball is a very selfish game. 
on that level, you know, because this fella's going, okay, well, this thing's built into my contract and I have to average this, this, and this, you know. And sometimes, you know, in, in basketball, they call it getting mine, you know, so I have to go and get my rebounds. I have to get my points. I have to get my assists because that's what matters to me and my coaches and they're my goals, right? But, you know, I always go back to Dennis Rodman, um, who the, the, the big bang in Pyeongchang and all these things. Rodman didn't care about scoring. He cared about rebounding because that was the way he could best help his team and being a good yeah. defender and that. But, Ultimately, you need players like, you know, there's a guy called Jeff Teague who played in the Milwaukee Bucks, started the season in the Boston Celtics, right? Celtics, yeah. Got hammered because he wasn't a great player. Walked away from the season with, a, with a, a ring. But he's what you call a glue guy. He does the things that stick the whole team together. He'll do whatever you ask him. He'll be a shooter if you want a shooter. He'll be a slasher if you want a slasher. A defender if you want a defender. God knows he's not a great defender. But he'll go out there and he'll do all those things. And that's what Westbrook isn't. And that's what Harden isn't. And if you go back to the middle of this season, Dan, when people are talking, oh, Kyrie Irving and, and, and Durant, and now you have Harden, they're going to walk at home. No, because at the end of the day, you can have brilliant individuals. But of all people, LeBron James realizes just how much basketball is a team game. You have to have guys there. You know, him, Anthony Davis, but you also have that chap with the headband. What was his name? Oh, he's, I think he's just left the Lakers now. Uh, I can't remember his name. I saw, I saw him play one night. Dennis um, Schroeder. No, he's no, Schrader, no, no. It's, it's a white guy with he's very thin hair on top. I can't remember what his name is. Oh, God. Caruso. And, you know, like he's one of these guys that, you know, you just have to have him. You have to be able to bring him off the bench and have that energy. Dwight Howard was playing there at the same time. Not a starting power forward or, or center in the league by any means. Yeah. But you need these guys. And Westbrook just doesn't, he doesn't have any respect for the game in that way. He's not a team player at all, you know. So I, I'm delighted they've signed him because I never want to see them win anything, you know. <laughs> Well, that's it. That's that's it. Everyone hates the Lakers, and you as a Celtics fan probably oh, hate God, the Lakers yeah, yeah. more than anyone. Like it breaks I mean? my heart. And the thing is, like I've been there and I've seen LeBron play uh, in there. I've seen Kobe, uh, Kobe Bryant play there as well in the in the Staples Center. You know, and uh, as a sports fan, I can love it. But you know, as a Celtics fan, I can't. It's just oh, I can't. <laughs> for, uh, no, I actually went to see them play. Do you remember that season? The great season the Golden Golden State Warriors had. What they have seventy three oh. wins in the season. Probably twenty sixteen, I think it was. But they went through the season. They broke the record. I think the previous record was yeah. like seventy two wins in the season in an eighty two game season. They had seventy three, and I saw one of the games that they lost. And it was just how, how can Dan, you even do that? This is only your second season following, isn't it? This is the last stand. This, this is, is on the back of the last stand. This is this is my second season being almost obsessive with it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just oh, took that off there, Merlo, just for you. Like, there you go, there you go. He promised me the Air Jordans. There they go. Fantastic. Smoke gray, lads. Smoke gray. You tell you now. Uh, I can't. Somebody tweeted you earlier on about us giving financial advice, Phil. I, I don't yeah, remember. We have no idea what that's about. Yeah, I don't know either. But uh, you think it could be the Paul Howard and Gary? Do you know? Do you know who that Air was? Jordans are things to invest in. That's all I'll say. Yeah, well, that, that, that's uh, that's Noel Scullion, a former uh, Antrim intercounty footballer, fantastic halfback, and a Stockholm Gales legend. I'll have you know, right? Uh -huh. But Noel is an accountant, and anytime anybody mentions money, he's like a cavern man. He's in there like a shotgun. <laughs> what are they talking about? <laughs> so you were probably joking with, with Paul and Gary Mackle about that, and he actually took that as serious financial advice, and he'd be like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah. you can't be doing that." Well, that's it. Well, so well, I told him. Given financial in advice in Yeah, well, I put your money in Air Jordans. Forget gold, forget property, forget everything. Put your money in Air Jordans, lads. That's where it's at. <laughs> uh, Paul, or sorry, Phil, um, what's the story with Reuters in terms of their coverage of the Paralympics? Is it equal or is, do they do any of it or? I, no, they do do it because there's a bunch of people staying on uh, to do that, right? So, but mostly it would be covered by local staff now. And the, the reason for that was that 
what hap- what's happening with the Paralympics now is that um, the restrictions are being lifted, right? But there was a problem with, uh, there was a journalist from Reuters who was accused of bringing a new strain of COVID into Japan, right? So what they basically wanted to do was they wanted to get us in and get out. Now, that was long before the Olympics ever happened, right? So they're going to use local staff to cover it then. The photographers who stayed there, Lisi, the Austrian girl who was uh, doing the surfing with me, and we did a couple of other, oh, we did the women's uh, soccer final together as well. Lisi stayed on and a couple of other people. So the Paralympics isn't as big structurally, right? So there's not as many sports, there's not as many medals, there's not as many events, but it is taken seriously. And it's one of those things that I'd, you know, I brought this up before. There's two things that I would bring up, and one is uh, things like the Paralympics, but the other was women's sport before. And I mean, you know, you've been fucking listening to me waffling for years about this thing of equality and just, you know, paying more than lip service to these things and trying to treat them properly. And I'm very glad to say they do do that. I'm disappointed for my own part that I couldn't get to stay on out there and to do that because it's one of those things. And I may do it in the future, you know, when my kids are older and moved out and that kind of thing. I may choose to stay on myself. I may ask and either work for them or for the Olympic News Service because the Olympic News Service a huge operation they provide a lot of the the information that goes to bbc and that as well you know so but i'd love to do it as well but they do yeah and in fairness they do take it seriously you know phil will you cover the winter olympics next year uh, in most the last thing that was said to me when i walked out of the main media center in, in uh, tokyo was i'd see in beijing in four and a half months right so it's one of those things that like with it's, so the winter many- olympics in four months it's, yeah at the end of february yeah, sure, isn't it yeah sure thing sure thing but like uh, it seems a lot clo- it seems like very packed together purely because the Olympics last year was posted this it was year. Postponed, so it was, yeah. It's in Beijing, yeah. is it? It's Beijing, in Beijing, yeah. yeah. Beijing. Now, what I was told, what's waiting for us in Beijing is a much harder bubble. So we'll go into the bubble and we'll just stay there. No contact with locals whatsoever. You know, it'll just be hotel to venue and hotel to venue and that's it. Like, you know, so and that's, uh, Beijing probably doesn't have the same appeal as get wanting to see Tokyo. It could be, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't. You're right, Dan, it doesn't, you know. But I mean, at the same time, you know, you're going to be traveling through. I was, you know, been driven in taxis from, you know, Chiba to, to Tokyo, from Tokyo mm-hmm. to Enoshima. By the time we got out there, we got the bullet train to Yokohama for one of the, the men's uh, Olympic soccer final. Like, so that was brilliant. Beijing doesn't really matter to me in that way. Japan was one of those places I've always wanted to see, you know, since yeah. I was a child. There in Iceland were the two big ones, and thankfully I got to do both of them now. Beijing, it doesn't matter to me. Like, you know, there's no landmark in Beijing. I don't want to go to Tiananmen Square for obvious reasons. You know, somebody might park a tank on me, given that, you know, how I can't keep my opinions to myself, you know. But the sport in Beijing is going to be brilliant. I mean, again, yeah. there's so many cross country skiing is dominated by Norway. And I know most of the people involved in it. Sweden put it up to them. There's a few Finns as well. Uh, Paul McCoskey, uh, the brother and sister, you know, there's some uh, biathlon as well. It's a tremendous sport. Yeah. Skiing like a maniac and then trying to get the heart rate down to go shooting and that. So that's one of those things that, um, that I look forward to doing, you know, and again, it's the story behind the lads, you know, when you start talking to people about, you know, where they've come from, what they've had to sacrifice for this. Now, the cross-country skiers make a lot more money than maybe a surfer might, you know, in just sort of down the field, you know, because there is a big professional circus, very popular in Germany, very popular in France, Switzerland, Russia, Belarus, these places. So there is actually money to be made in that sport. But then you meet guys, like I met a guy who was skiing from Mexico and the way they, they compete or the way they qualify is, they go, you know, when the World Championships are on, there's other qualifying events on around the world. So they'll turn up at some, you know, 30-kilometer race in, in Iceland and they'll ski their hoop off trying to make an Olympic time and get in there, you know. So these are guys who invest in themselves, their families and their friends and that kind of thing. And it's amazing to see. Now, they get absolutely battered, you know. It's just, it's so difficult for them, you know. Like, we know the result of a race and we'll call the result of a race because we know there's no way in the world these guys, if they had rockets on their skis, they wouldn't be able to keep up with the Norwegians, you know. So once the top 10 or 15 or 20 
accidentally passed and I would just go, yeah, that's the result because these guys aren't Is there many anymore. Irish uh, Winter Olympians? There is a lad, Thomas. I yeah. can't remember what his surname is. He, but well, he's, I think it's either his mother or father is Irish and then the other parent is Norwegian. You know, So he would have skied at a reasonably decent level. And then maybe he saw that you know the best chance I have is to ski for Team Ireland. So I've actually met him in Pyeongchang last time out. And, uh, and seeing him compete and he was really really good like I think he had a top 20 finish in the 50k which is that's, that's the big event as you know the, the 50k free or classic and yeah. uh, he did really well there we've, we've, uh, we've three qualified so far uh, I don't know if any more will get added at this point now because it's a bit late in the day maybe I don't know but uh, well there will be there'll be more qualifying events Dan I'd say probably you wouldn't be giving up hope until probably Christmas or New Year's Day though, okay, right? yeah, so, yeah. so when the, the the whole thing is called the Tour de Ski and when that starts mm. we usually have somebody involved in the Alpine skiing so in yeah we do yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've got uh, we've got two in the Alpine and one in the cross country yeah so the amazing thing, the other amazing thing about the Olympics, lads, is that, you know, you find yourself in Japan, right? And there was somebody from News Talk called me and they said, did you see the Rowan? <laughs> no, you'd never see anything else. Like, if you're not at an event, you're absolutely consumed with that. Like, you know, oh, Jesus. Uh, the night Was it Friday night last week there? They had the Women's Olympic soccer final on and Sweden mm. made the final. They were the best team in the whole thing and they made the final against Canada. Lost on penals, didn't they? Yeah, and man, they arrived thinking that, you know, we just have to show up because Canada wouldn't be as good as Sweden, right? But they had um, Sinclair, Christine Sinclair is a fantastic player, 28 years of age, the most caps. I think she had 305, that was our 305th game for Canada. She scored more goals than anybody else in international football, man or woman, right? And the Swedes turned up, went a goal up, gave away a penalty, 1-1. They thought, we're still going to win this, and they didn't. And I've never seen people cry as much in a mix zone, lads. And I was devastated for them because I've known many of them. You know, one of the girls was funny. I was texting her before the game, like the night before the game, because I didn't think I was going to get to go to those games because I was so busy with the boxing and sailing and this kind of crack. And I was saying, oh, I'm actually going to get to go to the game. And she said, Jeez, an awful long way to go from Stockholm to Tokyo for one game. And I'm here already, you idiots, you know? <laughs> and I thought, we're going to have a bit of a laugh in the mix zone. She'll get her gold medal. She won a silver medal in Rio. And it didn't happen. She got a second silver medal. And under normal circumstances, you'd be fucking delighted with an Olympic silver medal. That'd be the best thing that happened to you, you know? But she had one already. And they all honestly thought. And then as well, to miss the penalties like you know Caroline Sager who is one of the best midfielders I've ever seen man or woman just an incredible footballer has played so many times captain for our country and she's got like she had the penalty to beat the Canadians right if she had a score that was it gold medal and she put it over the bar and it's one of those things that you know Meryl you know this from watching Rovers some things you can't take back right and that's it and and she, she didn't do it and she has to live with that now like that's that's it that's you know for the rest of her life now to me it doesn't take away from her as a woman it doesn't take away from her as an athlete or as a footballer I still think she's one of the greatest midfielders I've ever seen play the game but that's there that's part of her story now and there's no getting rid of it we can't tip X that out for her you know and yeah. I would have loved yeah. to have seen her do that to win the gold medal for Sweden it would have been a perfect way to end I don't think she's going to come back but it would have been a perfect way to end but there was no fairy tale to be had this time around you wrote so uh, beautifully about your experience watching the Olympic lightweight boxing final with Kelly Harrington um, just describe the, mo- the the whole experience the lead up to it the, the, the actual three round bout and, and then the finale well like is it something that you'll just go to the grave with oh it's unbelievable I mean the, 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 uh, 
how lucky I am, Graham, to get to do what I do, to get to go to Madison Square Garden, to see fights in the MGM Grand and the T-Mobile Arena, to do like to be at World Cup, a World Cup in Brazil, to have met Messi and Ronaldo and all these things. None of that can hold a candle to what happened in the Ryoku in, in Tokyo last week, right? This place is a mecca for sumo wrestling. So when you go in there, there's actually, there's not seats around down where the ring are, right? There's people basically sit on the floor and they watch sumo. That's what they do in this place. And all around the place is these great sumo wrestlers, portraits of them, all these Japanese sumo wrestlers. So you're walking into this cathedral of sport. And the first time I was in there was when Kelly was fighting in the semi-final. And just to go back even before then, right? You know, when I started to watch boxing, when I started to watch sport, and you hear Jimmy McGee on the television, and you see so many Irish boxers going through in, 90, in the 1980s, you know, and watching that kind of thing, I think of Jesus, if I could only be there someday just to see it, not even to report it, but just to see it. And the first chance I get to do it, you have Kelly Harrington from Portland Row, which was my family's first home after my mother and father got married, was Portland, number 21 Portland Row. And here's a neighbor, if you like, a girl from up the road, and she's fighting in the Olympic semifinal. She's already got her bronze medal. And she went in there and she put on a clinic on the tours. She was absolutely brilliant, you know, to see the technical level of her boxing. She's not the most powerful boxer in the world, but she barely ever puts a foot wrong. You know, you're not going to see too many knockouts when she fights. But what you will see is brilliant, smart, clever, tactical, adaptable boxing. And that got me thinking when she won that fight. I was going... Jesus, I'm going to be back here on Sunday. So that was the Thursday. I had to do the women's final on the Friday, the men's final on the Saturday. And I got back from the men's final like four o'clock in the morning. And the women's final was on at two o'clock Tokyo time. And it got me thinking, Graham, I was on the way there and I was thinking, Jesus, my whole life has been leading up to this moment, right? All the time that I spent in front of the television with my father, my grandfather and my grandmothers, both my grandmothers love boxing as well. I thought, Jesus, if only they could see this. You know, my old man was at home in Dunny Kearney. And I knew he'd be up at six. I didn't even speak to him. Didn't have to talk to him. My sister didn't tell me nothing. She still lives at home. I knew he'd be watching it. And there I was sitting about 50 feet away from the ring, right? There's very, very seldom that I get excited anymore, right? I'm fucking spoiled, lads. That's what it is. I can sit there and I can watch Kobe Bryant dropping 24 against the Golden State Warriors. And that just happens, right? I can see Conor McGregor knocking Eddie Alvarez out to become the first two-weight world champion of the UFC. That just happens in my life because that's how lucky I am. And then I'm sitting there and... They're playing the Foggy Jew, Sinead O'Connor singing the Foggy Jew. Kelly Harrington is walking out for Olympic final. And lads, I was fit to be tied, right? I don't get excited. I don't get nervous. I don't have anything invested normally in these things, right? And Kelly's walking in there and I'm thinking, Jesus, if she wins this, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And even at that moment then, just the pride you feel in that moment as an Irish person, you feel pride for yourself. Because you've made it in some small little way, right? But she's made it. The whole world is watching this. The whole world is, the whole boxing world is watching this. She's going into the ring. And I was nervous, right? Because Ferreira is the kind of fighter, Beatrice Ferreira, I'd only seen her box once before, but Jesus, that told me enough. She bet the head off me at a Putkin from Finland. Putkin is 40 years old. She's dealt with most things. But like, you know, your woman does no handbrake on Ferreira at all in that fight. And she knocked lumps out of her. Like, you know, it was the, the most unanimous decision I've ever seen. I thought, Jesus, you know, if you stand in front of this woman and you try to fight, you go toe-to-toe with her, you're in trouble. But I knew Kelly wasn't going to do that because I'd asked Kelly after the semi-final. I said, what do you know about Ferreira? And she said, well, you know, I'll watch her this evening or whatever, but I don't really care. She said, I ain't going to control what I can control. And she had this real zen vibe about her. And you know that, you know, Bernard Dunn was in her corner, uh, that Kevin McManaman was there trying to prepare her mentally. And she's going in there and they go through the ritual of saying who they're from and the weight class and what they're boxing for and that. 
and then the fight starts and you go this is not good you know there's always a feeling out process but the problem with amateur boxing is that it's as over as quickly as it begins it's nine minutes right if you have a 15 round or a 12 round title fight that's over half an hour where if you make a mistake in the first round by the time it gets to the 10th you could be so far ahead in the judges scorecards that none of that matters that doesn't happen in amateur boxing so she lost the first round and I knew she lost the first round we were looking up the scores you know they're doing this thing ever since Mick Connor left the bollocks off everybody in Rio they're trying to be as transparent <laughs> as possible so they're using the 10-9 system now and uh, they put it up on the scoreboard uh, you know probably 20 seconds after the round ends so everybody knows what's going on including the boxers themselves I don't know if Kelly pays attention to that but the second round lads as I wrote in the piece that I wrote on Substack everything just clicked and she just she found her range perfectly she switched mostly to southpaw and she just scored and she never got into trouble again after that she won that round handsomely. You know, she won that round sort of pulling away. And then in the third round, Ferreira had to come forward because Ferreira knew that if I just stand at the end of her, I'm just going to get battered here. So she had to keep coming forward and Kelly just kept dancing away from her and just kept landing. And by the end of it, you knew. You just knew in your heart and soul. If you've watched this sport for more than 10 minutes, you knew that she had it won. And yet, we've seen it happen so many times in the UFC, in boxing, in professional boxing, amateur boxing. I've seen it happen, I don't know how many times in the National Stadium where the fellow will win. You go, hell on earth, you know. Yeah. Was, was Stevie Wonder judging this, you know? And, you know, so you think that, you know, there's always that risk that she's not going to do it. And then they're standing there. And the guy says, you know, okay, and the winner and the new Olympic champion. And then the local guy has to translate it into Japanese. And they go, ah, lads, would you hurry the fuck up? Like, you know? and he That's a Hugh Carl shot as low as. Yeah, yeah but, that, but that was it. Because he knew and we knew when they said by unanimous decision. Like, that, that was when we knew, you know. And Hugh went absolutely berserk on the radio. Uh, I only heard that afterwards, you know. Uh, but that was when we knew and that was when like I was I was sitting there beside an English fella called Martin Petty who was writing the box up with me you know and I, I could feel the, you know the, the sort of prickly feeling you get behind your eyes when you're starting and I was trying to hold it in because I thought I'm going to fucking break down here completely and I held it in and Martin said to me right I'll go down to the mix zone so I'll be ready when they come through we didn't know if they were going to go through the mix zone first and then do the medal ceremony or just go straight out and come back in again but that was what they did they went straight out and came back in again but once you go to the mix zone you're better off to stay there because you'll miss something if you don't they have screens down there you know so they had the next lightweight fight still can't tell you to this day I watched the fight I wrote about it still no idea who won that fight right there's two lightweights in there I couldn't tell you what country I can't tell you anything about them it was like right right that get it the fuck out and now let's get on because they told us to schedule then so after the second bout that was when Kelly was going to get our medal and down to my right hand side was where they were coming in for the locker rooms right and you had the two girls who won the bronze medals uh, Mira and uh, the Thai girl were coming in first and then Ferreira and then Kelly after and that was the thing when I went, I'm not going to be able to keep this together at all. And the great thing was it didn't matter because I didn't have anything to do at that point. I could just enjoy that moment. And there's very few of those moments that you actually get to enjoy at the Olympics because usually your nose is in your laptop banging out the latest thing and Martin sending me quotes from the mix zone that has to go update and update and update the whole time. And I went, no, I can just watch this now. And then she got in there and the two girls got their bronze medals and Ferreira got her silver medal. And Kelly was absolutely in bits getting the, the gold medal. Now, it's hard to see, for, you know, because she has the mask on. Like, but she was just wailing. Like, you know, she was bawling, crying with that sense of joy and relief that you have when you have that expectation of yourself and when you know that the expectations of Portland Row and of Dublin and of Leinster and of Ireland are, are on your shoulders, you know. And then when she stood up there and they put the, the, the gold medal, when she put her own gold medal around her neck and she turned to face the flag, and then it was like, you know, the start of Aaron Levine, over. It was all over, lads. And I was just balling, you know. And it was just, it, I was in rhythms. 
Yeah, but that, like, and do you know what? It was that was fine. You know, like yeah. to me, that was like I don't care about this thing of neutrality and objectivity. When I'm sitting down to write the story later on, that's fine. I'll do it then. But in this moment, I have to be allowed to feel these feelings. And we've heard a lot of that. You know, if you go back to the Euros when Christian Eriksen had the heart attack on the pitch there, and I was in the stadium that night. I remember talking to the coach the following day at a press conference, and he was saying that we have to have the courage. To feel these feelings, good or bad, right? And we saw men that night, you know, I saw Thomas Delaney, he was one of the hardest midfielders I've ever seen playing football, right? And he cried that night. And if you can cry when you're, when you're sad or when you're worried or when you're nervous, you also have the right to cry when you're glad. And I'm delighted to see so many people like me admitting it and you lads admitting it and Petey and Hugh and everybody else who watched that admitting that, there was, that we had tears of joy there, that it's not a thing anymore that, you know, boys don't cry, that we were able to feel this. There's a woman in there representing us in our country and all the things that we hold dear and she's just made us so fucking proud that we don't have any choice but to feel those feelings so that was a wonderful moment but like everything else in the Olympics it was quite quickly over you know they take it down then then they took the the, uh, podium out of the ring and then it was on to the next fight and then it was on to the next fight and then the day was over so then that was the point then when they had the press conferences so you know they have the press conferences in order and I went to the one where Kelly and Ferreira were sitting there. Uh, the two bronze medalists weren't there. Um, Potkinen was carrying the flag for Finland, the closing ceremony. The Thai girl, nobody mentioned her, so I think she just fucked off. Like, you know? <laughs> but Kelly sat there then and she was amazed by the level of interest in this thing. And that was when I decided I was going to write about how humble she was. You know? And I checked it with somebody. I said, look, you know, th- this is not just me getting fucking notions here. Is it? And they went, no, no, that's a story. If she's going to be humble and turn around and give the other girls a thumbs up as she did. But what struck me at the very end of it, lads, um, it was that was constant for me then for the rest of the evening. Right, I went back into Tokyo. I, I had something to eat. Um, I was packing my bags. I had to get up at six o'clock to follow, or quarter to six the following morning to get out of there. And I wanted to say something about, or I wanted to write something about what I had experienced, right? But I also realised that this was an important thing to me personally. Like what Kelly did was fantastic, but so much of how we communicate there's so many things that we can't communicate even if we can cry when we can see something like that there's so many things as men that we have difficulty saying and the hardest thing for me at that point was to think of my dad at home and Duddy Kearney and everything that he's given me and the love of sport that he's given me but not just that everything he's taught me about how to watch sport how to see what's going on how the weight shifts in a boxing match the difference between being on the front foot being on the back foot the same thing when it comes to watching football or hurling or golf all that knowledge and that love that he imparted to, to me and that is the foundation of the life that I've built for myself and it all came from him And in that moment, when I left that arena or when I was watching that flag go up and I was thinking about my grandfather is no longer with us. Like I said, my two grandmothers, they love boxing as well. And that to me was everything, you know, and the connection then to Portland Road to our first family home. And I was sitting on the plane back from Tokyo the following morning. Um, I flew to Warsaw first and then was from Warsaw to to Stockholm. And I was thinking to myself, how do I tell this story? You know, what, what is it I want to say here? And what I really wanted to say in that was how proud I was of Kelly Harrington of Portland Row. But I wanted to tell me that I loved him. Yeah. And that's not an easy thing for us to do. It's not an easy thing for me to do. The last time I saw him was New Year's Day 2020. It's not an easy thing for Irish men to do, for Dublin men to do, to say these things. And I went, fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to do it in front of the whole world because it's easier for me to do it in front of the whole world than it is for me to say to his face or to say it to him on the phone. So... With about an hour and a half to go from Warsaw, I got up on my seat. I had a lovely bit of leg room, lads. I'll show you the picture. It was fucking outstanding for a tall lad. Right? <laughs> I stood up and I grabbed my me, me laptop and me, out of my bag and I sat down again. And, I wrote, and it literally only took me a few minutes to write. I just wrote down everything as if I was having a conversation with him that I couldn't have because there's no wireless on the plane. 
and I put it back in and I got to Warsaw and I sat down the first chance I got when I got off the plane. I sat down and I just published it because if you think of these things for too long, it'll just go in your fucking drafts folder and you'll never do it. And I went, right. And I thought to myself, should I ask his permission? Because he's a private man, you know? He's not the kind of man who goes out and goes, oh, my son's at the... He doesn't do those kinds of things. He sits at home, he watches sport, keeps himself to himself. I didn't know if he was going to be embarrassed by it. I didn't know if he's going to be upset by it. I didn't know if he's going to think I was a gobshite. I didn't know what it was. But I figured to myself, I have to do this now. And I did it. And it kind of took off. And then last night, like, so I, I got home on Monday night. And then, you know, obviously my wife, and my children were here and that kind of thing. Didn't talk to anybody really about it. But the thing sort of took off. I know Kelly's brother, Chris, saw it and he thought it was fantastic. And the thing got legs, you know, you two guys read it and you were, you were very complimentary about it. But then last, yesterday evening. Like, I wasn't that time, complimentary. I called you a tick because you made me cry. I know. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> you know, again, that's your way of telling me you love me, you know. So that's, that's fine <laughs> by me. And I know you're well enough to know that, you know. But I got a message on, uh, on WhatsApp from my ma last night then. It's just, oh, dad wants to talk to Right, so my dad doesn't have a phone. You know, he had a mobile phone, one of those Ericsson things that's more used to you in a riot than it is in a fucking conversation. <laughs> you know what I'm and he just been there. like, I don't want to be at the end of this fucking thing. You know, and his hearing wouldn't be great or that kind of thing. So that that dad wants to talk to you. Says, okay, I'll ring you, and she puts her mobile on speakerphone, and then you get him. And say, you know, you swear he had two fucking paper cups tied together. So he just kept this hello, <laughs> you know. And we had that conversation and pretty quickly said, thanks very much for writing that. And that was it. That's all we need to say about it. And then we went on to talk about Leo Messi because he, he's been watching Barcelona for 15 years since Messi was playing that. He's, he's so disappointed he's gone to PSG. The Dublin hurlers and the Dublin hurlers for fullbacks getting, you know. And we just went back to having those conversations that we had because what I needed to say was said. And him saying thanks to me was his way of telling me, look, I appreciate that. And then it was done and we were just back to being who we always are. But the great thing is now that in this pandemic that, you know, if the worst should happen, I never got to see him again. Well, then we've had that moment and we've shared that thing of seeing Kelly win. He was down in Portland Road with his sister on Monday, I think. Uh, they just got the bus down there and they had a look around at all the bunting of that, you know, because he was lucky enough that when we moved to Dunny Kearney, there was a bank strike on in the early 70s, right? So he ended up borrowing money from relatives in America to buy the house that we had in Dunny Kearney. And then his, his father, my grandfather, said to him, look, we'll keep the house in Portland Road. We'll let it out. And who knows, maybe somebody in the family will take it over then. Now, they ended up selling it in the early 1990s. But it was rented out to people from Portland Row and from Sheriff Street from around there all that time until they sold it. So, you know, he was up and down there every week. He still knew people down there. You know, he was still meeting neighbors and people that he'd known before, you know. So for him to be able to have that after this pandemic where, you know, my brother wouldn't even let him walk his dog anymore because he was afraid he'd fucking stop talking to people <laughs> on the street, you know. So it was just, it was a beautiful way to close the circle because, you know, who knows, lads? I'm hoping to get back to Dublin in the very near future. We, we all know that, you know, uh, the life that we're living now is a lot different to what we were living two years ago. It was New Year's Day 2020, as I said, the last time I saw him or spoke to him face to face, you know? So if that was to happen, at least that we've had this, you know, I fucking hope it doesn't. I hope that, you know, sometime during the autumn, I get to go over there and if I have to do, you know, I've, I've got my vaccine, if I have to do a bit of quarantine, that's fine, you know? But that to me was, you know, to have that, you know, to, for our lives to come full circle in that sporting sense, you know, and to be able to say thank you for all the things that he's given me in that context. Jeez, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, it, was, it, was a, it was a fucking beautiful bit of writing, Phil. Genuinely an absolutely beautiful bit of writing. And just in case uh, anyone listening to this hasn't heard, when we put the episode up, we'll, we'll link it and all that kind of crack as well. But um, I think, I, I know for me anyway, and I think for a lot of other lads who, who would have read it that see themselves a little bit in it as well and that kind of relationship that you talked about that kind of thing where it's known but it's unspoken you know that yeah. way like i think i think a lot of people that that would have resonated you know what i mean and then that closing sequence as you said where you say it and everything i i 
fucking closed the lid of my laptop and I was like, fucking hey, Phil, hate him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's important, lads, because, because of that very fact, right? The, our relationship to sport for the most part as men and probably as women as well, that the generations that we come from, it was very much our fathers. Now, I, mm. I'm well aware of, of my aunts hearing this now and going fucking bananas because they were as interested, if not more interested. It's but my father's younger sister is a mad woman for the sport and her daughters, my cousins are mad women for the sport as well. And I've been in touch with them since because, you know, they would have had the same relationship to Portland Road because my grandfather was, was always part of that, you know. But to have those, like we inherited these things. Our fathers led us into these things. Our mothers too and our aunts and our uncles. But it was very much from our fathers. I'm not sure, Graham, you know, if you were to look back at, at you know, your relationship to Shamrock Rovers, I'm sure your dad has been involved in some way there. That, you know, that, that was something you got as part of your inheritance, you know, long before anybody leaves this world, that we get those things from them, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the Dublin hurlers, the Dublin footballers. I remember when the Dublin footballers were deeply unsuccessful and being hauled off to Tullamore and that kind of thing, you know. And my dad getting into slagging matches with people down at Kildare there and this kind of thing you know and then you know when they did start to get successful we'd be on trains where loads of heads were out my father never drank you know we fellas would be fucking drunk out of our minds you know and my dad be round with them and telling them to behave themselves and that you know so this is all part of the thing that we get but it's also their way of spending time with us a lot of the time you know if you go to crow park if you go to the national stadium if you go to um so where do Rovers play now? Do they have a ground now? I can't remember. But if they go to Tallis Stadium, uh, yeah, if they go to Daily Mount, which is a much better choice, you know, that's where we spend our time. That's where we spend our family time a lot of the time. But that to me is no substitute in the end, right? Because the last thing I would want anybody to, that I love to do is to reach the end of their days and for me not to have said that, right? That's the only regret that I could have in life. And it's the only regret that I could have with my own children is not... You can show people love in so many ways, but to say it is such a powerful thing and it's something that scares the Jesus out of us because we don't know how people react. I mean, there's many people that would say, you know, you might just get a nod of the head because the person on the receiving end might not be capable of communicating what it is that they feel. But I think to, to some extent, we have to be prepared, as the Danish manager Kasper Juhlman said, we have to be prepared to feel, we have to have the courage to feel these feelings and to say these things and not to be dependent on a response from somebody else, of them saying, oh, I love you too, or of them responding in the way that we expect them. You know, we have to just put it out there and to have the courage to be vulnerable as men, as fathers, as sons, as brothers and sisters. And that to me is probably the strongest thing or the most powerful thing that we can give anybody because, you know, Jesus, what makes the world go round at the end of the day? But you know what as well, Phil? Um, Like, the stars aligned for you to write that piece as far as, you know, um, Kelly Harrington in terms of people getting behind her. People fell in love with her. Um, There are... the, 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 The nation does love the Olympics. The nation gets behind their athletes in the Olympics. But they particularly got behind Kelly Harrington. They loved her down-to-earthness. They loved her salt-of-the-earth attitude. They, they loved that she's a frontline worker. They loved the real story behind it. And I think it's, in terms of your article, I think it's fair to say that because of that and her humbleness, that's what led her, that's what led you to write such a, a powerful article because it probably reminded you of growing up in Portland Row, your father and stuff like that. And if you weren't at that final, if she didn't win that Olympic gold medal, you wouldn't have written that article. No, this is the thing. Like, and again, that's the privilege of doing what I do, right? And I'm, 
no offense to, to the sailors or to the rowers or that kind of thing, right? But it wouldn't have had the same effect on me seeing Annalise Murphy win a gold medal in sailing. Absolutely. Right? Because, like exactly. I say, that's, that's not my parish, right? But being there and that sort of visceral connection that you have, but it has, it's very much to do with Kelly Harrington, the person, right? Now, I think that we have to be very careful because I don't want to put the burden of, you know, of leadership on, anymore on Kelly Harrington than she already is, right? That's just how she is naturally. She was the one who came up with the idea of walking in with the flag, handing over the flag and down to the Japanese people in gratitude, right? And I wrote about that for Reuters afterwards. Now, we were always limited after the fact. We were told 300 words. You call a sidebar so you have a main must be hard for you Phil to give 300 fucking words yeah. Jesus Christ <laughs> well at least it wasn't talking it was only writing so that's a bit easier <laughs> you know so, so I wanted to write about that humility and how that did sort of you know that and the Hakana Matata thing that, that brought her to the gold medal you know so like I said be very careful about sort of asking her for any more than she's already given us right and one of the last things I'd say about her because I really hope that if she wants to sort of recede and wants to go back to Mandy and go back to her family and be a private person again after all this because when she does the late late show and that kind of thing people are going to be pulling and dragging out of her now you know I've been very very careful I spoke to her briefly after the press conference but like I won't make any demands of her you know as a journalist or as a fan or as anything else right now because she's going to have enough of that but one of the things that struck me lads was that there's very little chance that any of us can do what she did in a sporting sense right we can't be the boxer that she is right we can't be the olympian that she is but there's fuck all to stop us from trying to be the person that she is the inclusive the humble the generous the gracious person that she is and that doesn't cost her anything we don't have to ask her because she's already shown us the way she's already shown us that dignity and that humility and that grace and we can all conduct ourselves in that way and to be at my age now i was fucking 50 back in june and to still be learning lessons from young North inner city women is the great, it's not even a revelation to me because they do it every day in my life. I'm learning from Gemma Dunleavy and I'm learning from her and I'm learning from this great generation of Afro-Irish women who are coming through um, from like from the artists and the musicians and the poets who are coming through there. And to, to take that, that will be her greatest legacy is young kids seeing that and going, that's who I want to be. I want to be a person like that who's respected, regardless of whether I'm an Olympian, but I want to be respected for the good that I do for my community. And she keeps coming back to it. And to see her yesterday, I turned on the news here on RTE on the television and to see her on the open top bus and st- crying again, you know, I think we've all been fucking crying since Sunday, you know, in a constant stream. But as, as I said to many people on Twitter, tears of joy are never unwelcome. And to have that sense of joy, but to be able to hold that and to bottle those tears of joy and to bring it forward and to try to make us all better people through it, that might be the greatest legacy of her Olympics. That might be even better and would more to us than that gold medal ever could have been. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Perfect. I think that is a great way to, to wrap up. Uh, yeah, the, the the humility and everything else shown by whore, as you say, it's a great lesson to all of us. And if we can all take a little bit of that away, then we'll all be better people for it. Um, but Philip, I've enjoyed the last hour and twenty minutes or so of of you giving us a as whistle always. stop. You giving us a whistle stop tour of your adventures in Tokyo and a brief sojourn there into the NBA as well. I've enjoyed it. Let's uh, and uh, let's not forget Portland Row either. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. yeah indeed. We'll probably talk to him for weeks. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. We didn't even get to talk too much about the Euros. You know what I mean? But sure, look. Well, look. I'll tell you what. We, I, like one of these days, what do we do? We will do a sporting review of the year, right? Where we bring in <laughs> yeah. PT and we'll bring in somebody else. You know, PJ might be a good value. It'd be handy to have another Bowes man on this podcast for one fucking. Day. No, yeah, grand. <laughs> well, you're outnumbered at the moment because, of course, Dan is a season ticket holder member. The whole yeah, thing. he's a, whole, am, he's a pretend am, Bowes yeah. fan. I am not a pretend. Can you withdraw that comment, please? You'll be hearing no. from my solicitor. 
his, his camera's not working very well, but he was going to show me the, the sleeve that he got of all the bows, great. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but absolutely, lads, as, as ever, it's a, it's a pleasure, it's a privilege to be here on this podcast. The original and greatest Irish podcast, it has to be said. Um, you know, like blind boys only trailing after this, and it's any time just to you know put, put the word. In. And I must apologize because when we were discussing this on WhatsApp, Graham was asking me to do this from Tokyo. And in a way, I'm sorry for letting you down, but in another way, I'm glad we waited until afterwards because we wouldn't have had a chance to talk about Kelly or all these other things. That's Absolutely very true. And you didn't Absolutely. you didn't let us down at all. We were we were placing impossible demands upon you with time zones and with your hectic schedule and your 290 euro taxi fares and your egg sandwiches. Look. We never take a person you feel we're chancing our arm. It's all good. There's, no, there's nothing impossible in this world. It's only impossible until it's done, lads. Love it. Love it. Love if it. people want to check out more of Philip's work, they can, of course, Philip O'Connor on Twitter and check out Our Man in Stockholm uh, as well. If you Google that, you'll get lots and lots of goodies. Graham Merrow Merdigan, if people want to listen to the 244 episodes to proceed this wonderful audio presentation, where can they do so? They can go to any podcast provider and search WTS Pod. You can get us on Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere, everywhere you can get a podcast. Go to WTSPod.com as well. You can get all our episodes. And we're on Twitter at WTS Pod. He's at Daniel Murray. I'm at Merrigan Mania. And that's it. Yeah, and I'd just like to say if anyone from Nike or if Michael himself is listening, I am available for an Air Jordan. Uh, just you know I, I will happily be a brand ambassador UK size 12 thank you perfect until next time clear eyes full out can't lose thanks Phil thanks Phil, thanks, Phil.